Welcome back, U.S. History. Today, we're going to be covering a fair amount of stuff here. We're going to be talking about space, the final frontier, Cuba, and Kennedy, and a little bit of Nixon, too. So, anyhow, let's get going here and start off with outer space. So we left off, for the most part, with Eisenhower at the helm. And, uh, you know, the Cold War was kind of heating up. We talked about Korea, and we talked a little bit about back home and what was going on in the 50s and some stuff in the 60s, civil rights and all those things. But we didn't really uh, talk too much about uh, Russia here in a while, other than kind of McCarthyism, but that was kind of some homegrown red scare. So let's start talking about ICBMs. No, I did not mess up my ABCs. I am talking about intercontinental ballistic missiles. All right. So these ICBMs, these intercontinental, these are missiles that have such a far range that they can go from one continent to another continent, that whole intercontinental thing. So these are kind of scary missiles because, you know, they can launch from an extremely far place away and all of a sudden just land in our backyard. That's not good. So the most common ones during the 50s were these V-2 rockets, and those were the Soviet-style ones. And so we were, you know, monitoring these. And then on October the 4th, 1957, the United States was listening to the skies and we heard a giant rocket go up. But this rocket was not headed for the United States. No, it was destined for outer space, carrying with it the first artificial satellite ever, Sputnik. And Sputnik uh, was the like, first satellite, and it was Sputnik 1, and it would orbit the entire Earth in just a little over an hour and a half, 96.2 minutes. And that was a pretty big technical accomplishment, although it only lasted three months before it burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. So the United States, you know, we were kind of king of the castle, if you know what I mean, and everything was going well, and then all of a sudden... We fell behind because the Soviets made it to outer space before us. So we started working, 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 and we launched our first satellite ever on January 31st, 1958. So not too far after them, and we called ours Explorer 1. Now, even though ours was second, ours was better because ours didn't burn up until 1970. So three months later, psh, ours we're looking at over 10 years later, March 30th, 1970. So, bottom line, the United States, we thought we were pretty superior here on Earth, which we kind of were, but when it came to outer space, we were falling behind. So, we started pumping money into education, especially science and mathematics, and figured, hey, if we get some scientists here, maybe we'll be uh, back on top in no time. So we, uh, we did this thing called the National Defense Education Act. This was in 1958, and we put $1 billion in for college loans, scholarships, and other scientific equipment for public and private schools. And it was all about the emphasizing of study of mathematics, science, and foreign languages, because we might need to spy on somebody. And later on, in 1958, July 29th, we formed NASA, and NASA is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which was formed by the National Aeronautics and Space Act. I know, it's a bit redundant, but I'm not going to try and fool you on it, but anyhow, NASA was formed. 
And so then, you know, over the next couple years, still trying to do outer space stuff and whatnot, the first man goes into outer space, and he wasn't American. It was a Soviet named Yuri Gagarin on April 12th, 1961, but we were hot on their tails because... The American Alan Shepard goes into space May 5th, 1961. So we're getting closer. They're still ahead of us, but we're going. All right, so that's kind of the the space race of it. And we're going to get back into going to the moon a little bit later. So bear with me on the moon one, but we kind of got to get to the we got to get to the Kennedy administration for that one. So as we talked about earlier, Eisenhower was in charge and he was in office from 54 to 61. And then his vice president decides that he wants to run for office and wants to be president. And that is Richard Nixon. That's my best Richard Nixon impersonation. I know, it's not very good. So, and his political opponent was JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. So, now there's a lot of history into this um, whole, you know, campaign with these two and some underhanded dirty stuff and whatnot it's a very interesting campaign um there's a pretty good video called race to the white house and it's a little mini series and the first episode actually covers it a fair amount it's pretty interesting stuff but i'm going to talk about some of it now and one of the things that was kind of memorable about this election was they had the first live televised debate ever and it went horribly wrong for Nixon. So, now, that being said, if you were listening on the radio, people thought that Nixon had won. But everyone who watched it on TV thought Nixon lost. So that's interesting. It seems to matter more what people, how they look, than what they have to say. At least, of course, this this was one of the largest TV audiences ever, especially for this time. So... Nixon looked absolutely terrible on TV, and Kennedy, who is kind of historically known as being a fairly good-looking guy, um, looked great. So uh, Nixon kind of was recovering from a staphylococcal infection, which is a fancy way of saying a staph infection. Also, Nixon had smacked his knee in the studio um, on his way in, and he was in pain, and Nixon already had some knee surgery, so he was in the hospital, that whole staph infection, everything like that, so... And, and you know, when you're when you're not feeling well, people can tell, and they just say, "Oh, you you don't look like you're feeling too well," kind of thing. So now, on the other end, Kennedy was looking pretty good. He declined makeup before going on TV. And anyone who's ever done any kind of drama or been on TV or under kind of stage lights, you might know that you need to have stage makeup. And Kennedy said, "No, thank you." Well. Nixon decided he would do the exact same thing. I don't need any of that makeup. Well, the trouble is, Nixon, who had been in the hospital most of the time and whatnot, had very pale skin, and this looked very bad on TV, whereas Kennedy, who had been going around, shaking hands, waving at people, being in the sun, had a great tan. Now, also, he had a bit of a medical condition that made his um, his skin kind of appear this, like, deep, kind of orangish tan color. So, it was almost like natural makeup. So... Kennedy looked great. Nixon looked terrible. And on top of that, um, Nixon had this terrible 5 o'clock shadow or like beard stubble. And he had sent an aide 
to uh, like a local supply, like corner store or whatever to pick up a product to help cover up this five o'clock shadow and the product was very um <laughs> very crappy product and it looked even worse when he was on tv because of it so um in the end kennedy did win out and it was one of the closest elections of all time it was less than two hundred thousand votes that separated them and there's some interesting information in there. If you look a little bit more, there was some question whether um, Illinois, specifically Chicago, operated correctly, meaning there was a lot of people voting that maybe weren't supposed to be voting, like people from the cemetery, but maybe that's a story for another time. So anyhow, Kennedy becomes our next president, and on March 25th, 1961, he issues a bold challenge to the nation. The United States, here's the quoting part, should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon. That's my best Kennedy. It's terrible. All right. Over the course of the next decade, NASA put tons of flights and research and so forth that brought us closer and closer to this goal. And finally, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon. Sadly, Kennedy was not able to see this goal fulfilled. Now, I will get back to that a little bit later. Um, because I'm not quite done talking about Kennedy's administration, because he just took office, and now I'm telling you that he didn't get to see something, so we should probably talk about that. But let's talk about Kennedy in office first. So let's do a little bit of a rewind, because I want you to know about a little different area of the world, a little bit south of America here, and I am talking about Cuba. So in 1959, Fidel Castro overthrew the U.S.-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista, and now Fidel Castro is in control of Cuba. All right, and so now all U.S. influences, that means like all U.S. businesses and anything tying, you know, money or anything to the United States is being kicked out of Cuba, all right? Castro, now in control, promises greater aid to the poor, all right? Well, guess what? The, the poor love this. And he's, he went on to say that the rich were profiting from the poor. And the poor were like, you know what? You're right. We hate the rich. We like you, Fidel Castro. So Castro, you know, becomes this, you know, kind of communist dictator of Cuba. And he starts becoming best friends with another communist country. That's right, the Soviet Union. And the United States doesn't exactly like this because we have this communist country right on our doorstep. I mean, they're like 90 miles away from Florida in Cuba, and we have communists. We're not a fan of this. So the United States saw this whole takeover and whatnot as like kind of a domino effect that, uh-oh, now that Cuba has fallen to the communists, this will happen in the rest of South America and area, and that's not good for America. So we didn't like them having such close influence to home, so we decided to put a little plan into action, and this plan that I'm speaking of is one that actually Eisenhower had approved back in 1960. And this plan... Um, called for the takeover of Cuba and ousting Fidel Castro. Well, the way this was going to be done was in conjunction with the CIA. So on April 17th, 1961, the CIA, which stands for Central Intelligence Agency, 
started training a group of Cuban exiles in Guatemala. All right, so we have these people that have been kicked out of Cuba, and we're taking them to Guatemala, which is a kind of similar climate and similar, you know, fighting atmosphere, whatever. All right, and so the goal was to train these exiles, and they were going to land in the Bay of Pigs, which is an a soft landing spot in Cuba. And once they landed there, they were going to overthrow the governments. This was the Bay of Pigs invasion. So the exiles were to pilot American bombers, bomb airfields ahead of time, and then the U.S. Navy and Air Force were going to help land them um, in this Bay of Pigs. Well, it didn't go well. The bombings went terribly, and then the landing went even worse, and they just got slaughtered, and some of them got captured. And so the exiles, who aren't doing well, they called up America, and they're like, please, help us out, help us out. And Kennedy is thinking, wow, we've probably gotten in over our heads to begin with, so we decided not to help them out. So the Bay of Pigs invasion was just an epic failure at this point. Now, Fidel Castro wasn't too happy about, you know, well, I mean, it looked like a civil war because it was Cuban exiles fighting against Cubans, but it was really America kind of pulling the strings. So Fidel Castro's kind of worried at this point. He's like, oh my gosh, this big country America just to the north of us is trying to take me out. So he says, if only I had a big brother to go to. But he does. That big brother being the Soviet Union. So now he becomes friends with the Soviet Union, more so at least, and you know the Soviet Union starts to take care of them. Well, we figure out what this taking care of them means on October the 16th, 1962, when a U.S. spy plane flies over Cuba and captures some photos of Soviet missile bases that are being built on Cuban soil, which have the ability to attack America, which is only 90 miles away. Remember those ICBMs I talked about? So this resulted in a standoff between America and the Soviet Union, and this became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it brought these two superpowers to the brink of nuclear war. So the United States did not like that the Soviet Union had these nuclear weapons pointed at U.S. soil. Well, the Soviet Union said, hey, we're allowed to do this. You're pointing missiles at us because the United States has missiles in Turkey pointing at the Soviet Union. So we both feel like we're justified at this point. So the Kennedy in the United States felt that this was, you know, completely challenging the United States and the United States must, you know, respond. So we weren't sure exactly how to respond. There was a whole bunch of different ways that this could be done. So I'm going to list kind of the top four and we'll talk about which one we went with and why we didn't go with the other ones. So we thought, okay, Maybe we can try to negotiate with the Soviet Union, um, their president or premier, Khrushchev. So let's try and talk with him. Well, the problem is, if we talk to him too much, that will give them time to finish these missile bases because we don't think they're done yet. So we don't want to give them too much time or they'll finish them. Or maybe we could invade Cuba. Well, if we do that, we're risking an all-out nuclear war. We could try to blockade Cuba and, you know, put basically a ton of American ships in a giant ring around Cuba and prevent all traffic in and out of Cuba. So basically putting the ball in Soviet Union's court and saying, look, we're stopping this. 
we're not doing anything violent, but if you want to, you're going to have to make the first move. So it kind of forces Premier Khrushchev's hand to either back off or be aggressive. Or finally, we could try to bomb the missile sites. Well, that could once again risk an all-out nuclear war or counterattack, and we might not even know where that counterattack's going to be. So, in the end, we decided to go with the blockade. So Kennedy put the United States forces on high alert, Uh, We loaded up our bombers, Uh, we got the Navy, the Army, the Marines, and everyone ready to go. Invade Cuba, attack the Soviet Union, all-out war, and the U.S., I mean, if needed, mind you, the U.S. Navy encircled all of Cuba. And then we waited. And Soviet ships came, carrying cargo and so forth to Cuba, and they turned back. And Premier Khrushchev back down, so to speak. I mean, there were demands, and we'll get into those in a second, but nuclear war was narrowly averted. So, after this, letters went back and forth demanding, you know, different concessions and terms and so forth to go between our two countries. So, Khrushchev sent a letter to Kennedy and basically said, look, you need to remove these missiles and um, end the quarantine. So, you know, Um, basically, we'll get rid of our missiles, you end the quarantine, you get rid of those missiles in Turkey, and, and, you know, we'll keep going here. So the United States must get rid of the missiles in Turkey. The Soviet Union will get rid of their missiles in Cuba. The United States will end their, you know, whole quarantine um, of Cuba. A hotline will be established between the two countries to make sure that this could never happen again. And a hotline is a connection between the United States and the Soviet Union's leaders that allowed them to communicate quickly in the event of a future crisis. So usually in movies they have it as kind of like a giant red phone that someone picks up and it instantly rings in another country. So that's kind of what it is. Uh, Also during this time to kind of prevent nuclear war, we decided to put in effect the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which banned nuclear testing above ground. So you can still test nuclear weapons, but it must be underground. And the idea was to eliminate radioactive fallout, um, because that can contaminate humans, animals, plant life, and, you know, radioactivity kind of stuff. All right. So that was kind of one of the big political and, you know, kind of world crisis type things that Kennedy had to do under his administration. Now, sadly, um, his administration got cut a little bit short. If you remember earlier how I said that Kennedy did not get to see us go to the moon. Well, here's our time to talk about that. So this is the death of JFK. And Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald. So Kennedy, in November 22nd, 1963, uh, he is up for re-election at this point. So he starts to kind of get on the re-election campaign. And he's visiting Texas with his wife, Jackie Kennedy. And they met the governor of Texas and his wife. And they decided to ride in an open-top limousine for a parade through the town and so forth. And the newspaper had published the route that they would be taking ahead of time. And people line the streets to see the president and wave at him and say hello and so forth. And the presidential motorcade went by the Texas School Book Depository. And on the sixth floor, Lee Harvey Oswald was there with a rifle. Two shots hit Kennedy and the Texas governor. Kennedy's hit was a mortal wound and he succumbed to his injuries and passed away. 
Um, Lee Harvey Oswald was the prime suspect of this. Now, I say the prime suspect uh, because we... Well, we'll find out what happened to him next. We never got a chance to really put him on trial. Um, now, just a little bit about Lee Harvey Oswald. Not that there's much to say. He was a former Marine, so he had military training, and a supporter of Fidel Castro. So, Oswald, who we caught pretty soon thereafter, gave very little information about the shooting. And as he was being transferred to a different jail on live television... Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub owner, stepped through the crowd, jumped out in front of reporters and everyone alike, and fatally shot Lee Harvey Oswald on TV. And Ruby, obviously, was arrested immediately. Lee Harvey Oswald passed away. And when asked why he did it, Ruby said that he did it to redeem Dallas in the eyes of the country and to spare Jacqueline Kennedy the ordeal of having to go through a trial and relive her husband's death. And Ruby was convicted of murder and of murder. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories that kind of have arisen since then. The idea of a second gunman behind the grassy knoll or on the grassy knoll, the magic bullet theory. And, you know, every now and then it pops up in movies. There was an X-Men movie not too long ago that had uh, Magneto bending a bullet in the air because it was metal and so forth. So, um, anyhow, we are going to stop there for now. Uh, we are going to pick up with the Vietnam War next. So more to come, but just a little quick one for you here. So I hope you have a wonderful day and thanks so much for listening.